Welcome to the Theology Pugcast, pugcasting to you from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, right down the street from Colt Firearms. By the way, I took a picture of the entrance to Colt Firearms, and I'm going to post it on the Facebook page for the Pugcast, just so people can see that I'm not making it up. We drive by it every time. Well, you guys come from the other direction. You guys don't yeah. have the blessing <laughs> That's right. driving by I'm Colt Firearms. I'm familiar with it, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a quarter of a mile down the road. Anyway, we're glad to have you here with us yet again for the Pugcast, and uh, let's introduce ourselves. Why don't uh, you start, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. I've written a few things. One of those things is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. But that's so yesterday. I am preoccupied these days with fiction. I also have a, a young adult uh, series, a fantasy, series of fantasy books. The first book is out with Cannonball Books. And um, wrapping up the manuscript uh, for the second book in the series, The Fay Brand. And uh, Glenn's wife has got a gun to my head, and she's threatened my life. So I've got to get it done. It's not a cult, though. I've got to get it done so she can have it for Christmas. So I'm working on it. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is uh, today I want to talk about something from the world of fiction. I want to talk about, it's, by the way, it's my day, and I want to talk about Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Now, Tom Bombadil may be the most controversial character in the Tolkien corpus. And the reason is... Is the, there a close second? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Can you think of anybody else that may be uh, as controversial as Bombadil? Not even close. Yeah. So... The thing that I've come across with when it comes to Bombadil is people wish he wasn't in the story. And apparently, uh, Peter Jackson felt, felt that way because he left him out. <laughs> you know, it's not a, he's not in the movies. Now, th I know people make the apology for Jackson and saying, well, you know, that would have been such a distraction. You know, the, the pacing of the story would have been harmed and all that kind of stuff. But I uh, strongly disagree. And uh, I'm not a big fan of Jackson and his stuff. But... Uh, leaving Jackson aside, getting back to the point when it comes to Bombadil, a lot of people, uh, because they can't figure out what in the world Bombadil is for, more or less assume that this was some kind of indulgence uh, on Tolkien's part, sort of a, a, a kind of, uh, you know, little jaunt, you know, off the path to play with something from, you know, you know, the nursery at home, you know, you know you, we, we were talking about this just a minute ago, Glenn, about the fact that uh, apparently uh, Tolkien, you know, because he told stories to his children, uh, employed, and it, according to what I've read and heard, uh, just lots of different things in, in his story time. But one of those things was this character, Tom Bombadil. Hmm. And I've heard, you know, people speculate concerning where he got the idea, um, the it was like a, a, a doll, a Dutch doll he had from yeah. childhood, and that uh, sort of was yeah, the yeah. inspiration. That was one I heard. Oh, I've heard that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. And um, and so 
you know, because of the, and because he's kind of absurd, you know, he, he's got this, you know, he's got these ditties that he sings that are kind of nonsensical, and he's kind of dumpy looking a little bit, you know, and uh, he's, well, anyway, for all these reasons, people just wish Bombadil would go away. Um, now, one of the things that makes me, uh, you know, uh, disagree with that with that take is that I don't think Tolkien uh, did anything without meaning to in his writing. We know that he was obsessive about the details of his stories. Uh, we know that he was obsessive uh, with regard to his legendarium for sure, you know, which he had he worked on over the course of his entire life. I can't imagine Tolkien just putting something into a story just to keep his kids happy or just to indulge his own tastes or anything like that. I think that there's something more going on. Furthermore, this is a guy who's a philologist mm -hmm. for whom words and stories and myths meant everything. Mm -hmm. And consequently, I think that there's something much more significant going on with Bombadil. In fact, I think Bombadil is the point. Now that's the controversial thing I'm presenting to you today. But uh, I wanted, before I get any further and you guys respond to some of these ideas, I wanna uh, read some notes that I got from my daughter-in-law. Uh, my daughter-in-law is a uh, English teacher at a classical school in the Nashville area. And she's actually uh, teaching a class on Tolkien right now. And so she heard that I was going to bring this up for the podcast, and she said, oh, maybe we can, you know, have the kids do something with regard to, you know, the content of the show today, and I said, well, how about if you just have them, you know, write out their questions, you know, in terms of what is this Bombadil character all about? <laughs> so I'm just going to read, uh, read these notes just in succession. Uh, there are no names attached to them, uh, but then that, they'll serve as kind of a backdrop as we continue the discussion. So the first, the first note is this. Why are Tom's powers limited to the forest? Hmm. I think that's a really good one. If you remember, Tom Bombadil lives in the old forest, which is right next to the Shire, uh, at, right on Buckland, with that side of the Shire. Um, here's another question. Why does Tom wear blue and yellow? <laughs> I hadn't thought too much about that, but that, that's a good question. Red, red. Do <laughs> Colombian. <yeah. Do> <laughs> the question that I have is who wears yellow boots? That's, I mean, that's, come right. On. that's right. Little girls wear yellow boots. <laughs> In fact, I saw a little girl on Sunday night with her yellow boots at our church's backyard fellowship. Anyway, uh, another question why does Tom not disappear when he puts on the ring? If you remember in the story, Frodo and the, and the hobbits you know, take refuge in Tom's house. They're there with Goldberry and Tom. And during the course of a, the dinner, uh, Tom, you know, is uh, talking to Frodo about the adventure and the road ahead and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff that that he uh, is is uh, been in, employed to to be a part of. And uh, just uh, almost for, out of fun, uh, Tom puts on the ring. <laughs> He's completely unimpressed with the ring, by the way, but when he puts on the ring, he doesn't disappear. In fact, he <laughs> makes the ring disappear. If you remember in the story, Frodo is shocked and even kind of panic-stricken when yeah. he can't see the ring anymore because, you know, like an, like, an, like, a, like an uncle that gives you Dutch rubs or something like that, you know, Tom had just played a little trick, a little sleight of hand, and made it disappear. 
And isn't their response at one point is, uh, who is this yeah. Tom Bombadil? They ask uh, Goldberry. Right, right. Yeah. right. So they're just as <laughs> puzzled as all the readers are. Who is this guy? Yeah. Right. And we'll get to that conversation, it's like too. like after Jesus come the... <laughs> yeah, right, right. Who is this guy? That's right. That's right. Right, right. Um, so uh, let's see. There's one. That, what is the origin of Tom Bombadil? Hmm. Where does he come from? Um, Here's, a, here's one uh, f uh, that reads, uh, Tom first comes off as an example of ultimate good, but is later described by the Council of Elrod mm -hmm. as completely indifferent uh, and, uh, and in terms of the fate of the, the, you know, the ring and the world uh, outside mm -hmm. of his small yeah, uh, forest. Yeah. Uh, where do you think uh, he lived? Uh, Lies and why? I, I think what's being asked there is: Is he good? Is he bad? What, you know, is there such a thing as kind of unaligned? You know that kind of thing. Um, why does Tom Bombadil? Uh, why does Tom Bombadil's age keep being brought up? That's interesting. Remember, yeah. Tom says uh, in response to the question, "Who are you?" You know, he says, "I'm the oldest." You know, he says, "I've been I've been here since the start." You know, I remember when the first acorn fell. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's what he says, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Anyway, um, <clears throat> that kind of gives us a little start here. I didn't go through all the, the questions. Sorry, kids, I didn't read them all, but uh, <laughs> we we ought to transition here a little bit. Now, how do you respond to some of these some of these questions or some of these observations about Bombadil? Actually, I'd like to go back to one of the things you said about Tolkien as a philologist. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, know that, but I'm not sure they know what a philologist is. Yeah, why don't you explain it? Okay, so uh, I was a linguistics major as an undergrad, and I was really, really interested in historical linguistics, which is the study of the way languages evolve and develop over time. Yeah. A philologist is something like a historical linguist, but the difference is the philologist sees in the evolution of language hints about culture. So that when you look back at the way a language is structured, you look at the vocabulary and things like that, it tells you something about the culture and the society that used the language. Mm -hmm. So the example is that all the uh, old English words for warriors revolve around horses. Hmm. And yet the Anglo-Saxons didn't fight on horseback. Hmm. So Tolkien concluded that at some point the ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons must have been horse warriors. Riders of Rohan. Therefore, the riders of Rohan speak yeah. Old English. Right, I mean, right, you know, so right. it, the language provides a clue to the culture. Right, now, right. And if you're thinking like a philologist, then what Tolkien is doing in Bombadil, because Bombadil is constantly playing with language in his rhymes and things like that. Right. And there is something and he's really almost, profound that must be going on there. Right. And he, he's almost tied to, sorry about that, he's almost tied to a different notion of, of time, for example. And because of that, it, it talks about the way in which he's related to almost the rhythms of nature. The way he, his temper, he, he's concerned more about the way the long-term game of nature, he's more connected to that than the short-term battles and wars and things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And so he was there at the beginning, as the, the story tells, right, right. Um, when, when he saw the first raindrops fall, when he, when he saw all of these, uh, the, the whole of nature start to unfold and unpack. So 
as a philologist, I'm just asking, this is speculative, would not one of the ways in which a philologist studying language and its evolution, development, changes, be first and foremost connected to someone, first and foremost be connected to that order of nature, mm -hmm. its, its deepest rhythms and unfolding. Hmm. I'm yep. just curious, the relation. At well, and, th and then you can take it a step further, which is something we talked about before we started recording. In Tolkien's creation myth, it's all built around music. Right, <laughs> right. And in a sense, what Tom is doing is echoing the music of creation uh, and using the music of creation, which sounds like simple, childish nonsense to us. Mm -hmm. That's saying something about the nature of creation, creation itself and, and, and the, the way God, or the gods, perhaps, in, in, in Tolkien, because that gets a little complicated, the way that they control, shape the world. Mm -hmm. And the nature of... And, the world. Yeah, the nature of the world. And that this simple, child, childlike or childish even, yeah. kind of music that shapes and molds everything around it. This brings us to something I've been thinking a lot about, we've talked about before, and that's Adamic lang language. You know, the language of mm -hmm. the garden and the original language. And, you know, throughout the history of the West, there's been this uh, longing to, to know that language mm -hmm. because it was believed that it would provide uh, the kind of dominion, or be a means of exercising the kind of mm. dominion that had been lost. You know, if we think about the confusion of language, you know, at Babel, and at, at, mm. as you know, and it came about as the result of hubris, about mm. you know, the, the desire to make a, a name for ourselves. You know, when you think about what was the what was the purpose of the building of the the tower. Uh, at Babel. It was, there were two sides to it. One was so that they would remain unified, that we, you know, so we wouldn't be scattered over the face of the Lord, and that we could make a name for ourselves. And then the Lord comes down and confuses the language. Uh, so there's this, there's this interesting relationship between language, dominion, power. Uh, power. Yeah. That's right. And this is one of the places where, of course, where the postmodernists, I think, are on to something. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but I don't think they believe in Edemic language. I just think that they believe in the power of language or yeah. the power of language to right. deceive. Yeah, for the postmodernist, language is a, a tool mm -hmm. that you use to shape society, basically. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it's artificial and it bears no real connection to anything substantive in the world, but it is used in... in the sense of providing you with social and therefore political power. Mm -hmm. So, in, in Tolkien's mind and in this idea of Adamic language, uh, what we're looking at is something really different. It's the idea of language. It, well, it's, it's, we did a podcast a while ago where I was doing a, what I called a word ramble right. wrong from John Chardy, where language a lot of the words that we have that we associate with language are actually connected to concepts that we would describe as magic, as, as genuine power and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's much closer to the way Tolkien saw language, certainly mm -hmm. the way he uses it with Bombadil. Yeah. Well, you think about, you know, uh, you know in the course of that episode in the, mm -hmm. the, the Old Forest, we had the, the hobbits uh, come under the spell that's of right. Old Man Willow. Willow yeah. So they're traipsing along, and they, they, they suddenly feel very sleepy, and, you know, 
and they they take you know a seat underneath this big old you know willow tree, and <laughs> next thing you know, and they're falling into the water or being pushed in by the roots, and then the the tree cl you know, closes on yeah. you know Mar I think it's Marion Pippin, yeah. and uh, then. Uh, you know, Frodo just begins to yell for help and running down the path, you know, not having any sense that any help could possibly be in, in hearing distance. But, but sure enough, there comes Tom Bombadil, you know. Singing, right? Singing, that's right. You know, a lot, you know doing you know, his, his ridiculous ditty. Yeah. And uh, then uh, he comes to the tree, and of course, what does he do? He, the first thing he does is he hits the tree a few times with a branch, and uh, then he, you know, speaks to the tree and if I remember correctly, and there may be a listener out there who can correct me, <laughs> but, if, but if I remember correctly, he speaks into the tree something that can't be heard. The tree hears it, and immediately the tree opens. Yeah. yeah I think you actually, if, I, if my memory is right, he speaks into the tree, then he whacks it. <laughs> 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 You're probably right. You're probably right. right. <laughs> Meaning, yeah. I really mean it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, the, I, but, but I don't think that anyone would think that the whacking of the tree with the stick was the thing. No. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, not even close. Right. Yeah. But but I but my my suspicion is 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 that what we've been thinking about this thread of Adamic language, sort of the understanding of the nature of things, the original song that brought everything into being, all these things are connected, and uh, the even the the word and the power. Is somehow connected to, you know, the, the true nature of things. So here's my theory uh, with regard to Tom's use of language and its power over the world that he is the master of. By the way, we'll get into that. He's referred to as the master by Goldberry. But he, uh, my, my theory is that he remembers the song. Mm -hmm. He knows the true nature of the tree. He knows the true nature of the willow. And he's calling it back to its true nature. Well, and if you think about the larger images that Tolkien uses for evil, mm. they inevitably involve the destruction of nature. Mm -hmm. They involve gears and wheels and machines and things like that. And that in the eyes of Sauron or Saruman, these are, this is the source of power. This is the root of power that we can you know, we can actually to twist, to destroy, to maim, to, to do all of those kinds of things. And we can make machinery which shows our superiority, our dominance over nature, mm -hmm. that we can shape the world the way we want it to, which inevitably involves rejection of what it really is. Yeah. And See. Bombadil's power is in childish songs. Mm-hmm that don't distort or destroy nature, but that exercise proper dominion over it. Yeah, I think that's the key, that's the key. My theory is that uh, Bombadil is, in a sense, a, a kind of lament, a kind of wistfulness, um, a kind of a, uh, a proposal of what might have been. This is what dominion biblical dominion looked like in the garden. And, and so what you have there, for just kind of summing this up, if, I, if I'm following it right, is that you have these two contrasting notions of power and dominion. And one of them is one that actually is not in 
the fallen state, if we can use that language in this story. It's one that is connected to the heart of the, the original creation. Mm -hmm. It's something that knows it from the beginning. It knows the song of creation. It knows how that song has infused itself into the very heart of that creation. And so it can speak the language that addresses the heart of, of the creation. So dominion here can be something that one is relaxed and joyful and leisurely about because it isn't about dominating nature and and the creation for example but it's about it's about it's about cultivating it or if that language isn't good it's about being so in tune with it that as one speaks its own language one actually is able to communicate with it in such a way that the the, the world nature the creation um, uh, addresses it back the right way, right. in a non-domineering, threatening way. Right, and, so, and we, have in, we have in the story a couple of times where, where Tom, uh, you know, actually fights evil. Hmm. One was the willow, yeah. and then you have the barrel right. Yeah. And in both cases, you know, Tom is not indifferent. He comes to the rescue. Yeah. You know, he, 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 he may be indifferent in a certain sense to, you know, you know what's going on in the great political arena of his yeah. time. But think about it, this guy has been here from the start, he's seen it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, it's not as though he's uncaring. Yeah. You know, he does care, and uh, he does come to the aid of his friends. He's particularly interested in the fate of his, uh, his ponies, I remember that, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and there's a there's a there's a conversation that Frodo had with Goldberry at the at the dinner table, you know, after they finished eating, after they arrived at Tom's house. So I want to think about it a little bit, but I cut you off, Glenn. I don't I don't want to. Oh, all I was going to say is that it, 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 there's an important distinction between dominion and domination. Yes, mm -hmm. right. And you know, those two letters in the middle make a, a huge amount of difference in terms of the implications of what what you're talking about. Right, right. In biblical concepts of dominion are not domination. Mm -hmm. they're, they're working to, I mean, the entire trajectory of the creation account is forming and filling. It's, it's bringing things to their, at their proper ends. Mm -hmm. And what you see in domination, and the, the sort of domination you see in the, uh, uh, the evil, you know, whether it's, it's Morgoth or Sauron or Saruman in, in Tolkien, what you see there is twisting and distorting and turning away from proper and natural ends. Where with Bombadil, it's not that at all. And, and I think what th that implies is that when you lose natures, like mm -hmm. human nature, the nature of things, then it inevitably, I think, mm -hmm. uh, it leaves you with nothing but domination. That's uh, right. Because yeah. what, you, what you have at that point is just inert material that needs to be formed into something. Right. And welcome to Nietzsche's will to power. That, there you go. That's right. That's right. The imposition of meaning, kind, right. and 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 uh, the pushing things towards the service of of you know uh, domineering wills. Right. I think you know one of the ways to to to, um, to line whether or not a person thinks in those terms is mm -hmm. their assessment of, of the naming of the animals. Remember, you know, the, the animals are brought before Adam and he gives them their names and whatever he calls them, it, you know, that's the name they go by. Now, what 
guides this process? I mean, is, yeah. is it just kind of, now, we're not told. I mean, it's, it, it's one of those pregnant silences, you know, it's, you know, how do you read that? It, and I think it, it says something about the reader, how that person reads it. Uh, but if we say that it's an arbitrary act, it's just whatever sounded nice to me, or that kind of thing, uh, I think you fall into this problem of domination. I think yeah. you become a dominator rather yeah. than if you are looking, if you're, if you're able to discern the nature of a thing and, mm -hmm. and give it the name that uh, uh, actually describes uh, what, you're, what you're seeing, then you're talking about what we're talking about. It's right. very interesting because Tolkien, in one of his letters, he actually talks about the way in which he understood Bombadil in a sense that he at once named it sort of the, what he would call pure science. Hmm. Um, Bombadil represents the purity of real science. And what he means by that is the way in which someone in the right kind of detachment would be related to it. And what he means by that is the right kind of disposition that isn't domineering of it and forcing it to do something. It's one that is actually recognizing um, the, the true, distinct gift that the other thing is. Um, that was sort of, he, he uses the term other there, but, but in that he's talking about the way in which, what would it be like if someone were, were genuinely related to creation and nature without falling into the power trap that it's become mm -hmm, mm -hmm. basically um, enchanted right. under. Um, and that's what he meant there by, by it being the kind of real or pure science because he's not looking for it to do something for him. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. standing in relationship to it in a way that actually sees it for what it is and is able to relate to it in a way for what it is right. and speak to it, sing to it, um, and not manipulate it or, or put it in some kind of uh, under his management. Right, okay. right. Well, you know, in Hebrew, names are supposed to reflect nature. Right. Yes. You know, which is why every time someone has a significant encounter with God, pretty much God renames them because right. they become a different person and so yeah. they need a different name. So I think that it's not, it's not, I think the text tells us, just if you understand this notion, that when Adam names the animals, he's expected to give them a name that reflects their nature. It's not like God's going to bring an animal before him and he's going to say, all right, that's Phil. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's um, you know it, 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 it's supposed to really reflect what the creature is. So, in naming the animal, you are identifying its nature, mm -hmm. and with that, there's a degree. Of what naming also conveys with it the idea of authority. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. you got you, if you are giving something a name, you are claiming authority over it, and this then ties in with all kinds of Celtic and other magical conceptions that a thing's true name gives you power over it. Yeah. So by pronouncing the name, by, by, by pre again, moving to Tolkien now, by knowing the names, by mm -hmm. knowing these things, you exercise dominion, you exercise legitimate authority, and you exercise, well, frankly, control over it in accordance with its nature. Yeah, that is the key, in accordance with its and nature. And I think that's right. what he meant when he was saying this was pure, a pure view of science. That's and, right. And knowing something, because you're knowing it according to the nature or gift that it is, and by doing that, you're naming it the right way, and that way the exercise of authority that one has, or the relation one has to it, is such that it's, it's proper versus... Right. I think, I think at this point we need to, to, to set up a, a guardrail. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I say that is we live in a time where people feel like they have the authority to name themselves. 
So naming yourself is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the kind of libertine freedom yeah. that says no one should be allowed to impose anything upon me. I don't have a nature either. I don't recognize my own nature. My nature is whatever I choose to be. So that kind of... Next week's topic. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about that. In fact, what, would, what I think would happen with, say, someone like uh, Bombadil is uh, he would remind you of your true nature. If you, if you departed from your nature, he would call you back to it. Yeah, yeah. Your nature was not... Uh, yeah, I mean... It, 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 it's, it's, as we've talked about before, in other contexts, it's gift. Mm -hmm. It's something that is given to you. It's not something that you create out of whole cloth. That's right. right. And you right. don't even really have uh, connectedness to it any longer to be able to read it off of some kind of uh, direct surface. Right. Um, and that's interesting because Bombadil still does. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the other characters that are caught in this this you know this web and stream of. Yeah, and that's why that's why I believe he's the foil. Yeah. We we should read. You know, Bombadil against Saruman. We should read Bombadil against Sauron. We should read Bombadil against Melkor. He's the antithesis of all those uh, those creatures. Okay, those and then that, that also gets us to why he doesn't leave the old forest. Hmm. Because his decision is these other territories were given to other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are not mine. Right, right. This this area here, this small area in the old forest, this is this is where my legitimate dominion lies. I am not going to impose this yeah, yeah. beyond the borders of this area. He was a localist. He, he, he was a localist because <laughs> he would belong to Front Porch Republic. Okay. Be, because <laughs> he'd be drinking counterweight if he were. <laughs> They're, they're slumbering with me. It's amazing. But, 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 um, but the, the, the point is these other territories are given to other people. Mm -hmm. And so no matter how much they screw it up, right. that's their responsibility. That's right. that's, and they're that's accountable to something. And they're accountable to it. That's why the ring has no power over him because... He, he doesn't. It, it, he doesn't care about it. it. It doesn't come from his territory. He doesn't even recognize it as being of any significance. Yeah, it doesn't come from his territory, but it also gives him something that he has no interest in. Right. Which is control mm -hmm. over. Like when you, if you think about, you know, the 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 idea of uh, you know disappearing hmm. when you put the ring on. Remember that episode? Hmm. Of course, uh, when Frodo. Who's a little miffed at the at the magic trick? Hmm. You know, puts on the ring to show how you know to make sure it was really the real ring. Well, that, yeah. but also to say I'm an important person. I've got an important job, and you just made fun of it. <laughs> you know, put on the ring. I'm going to disappear. Everyone else is where's where's Frodo? And then Thomas is is sort of. Uh, uh, he, I think he's a little miffed, but in a in a humorous way, he says, hey, Frodo, take off that ring. Your hand is. Fairer without it. My eyesight hasn't gotten so bad that I can't see you over there. Yeah. That's, right, that's, right. that's right. So and then and then Frodo's. Oh yeah, of course. You know he's he's kind of embarrassed that he's been caught in the act. But uh, but so I think that now another thing. Now now people might think that we're kind of run amok here. That we we have allowed our imaginations to run away with us a bit. <laughs> but I think that there are other things in the corpus, uh, even in the uh, Lord of the Rings, that reinforce some things we've just talked about. Think about Treebeard. Remember when Treebeard meets the hobbits, Merry and Pippin, 
they're just more than happy to tell him their names. <laughs> and he says, don't be so hasty now. A name is a, you know, you shouldn't be telling your name to just anybody. That's right. <laughs> you know, and of course, Treebeard may be the second oldest creature in Middle Earth behind Tom. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. At least good character or whatever. And um, which, which you, which you also have is this sense of territory. Um, you know, when they ask uh, Treebeard which side he's on, he's like, I'm on my side. <laughs> you know, I'm I mean, not on anybody's side because no one is on my that's side. Right, that's right. Entirely on my side. So. That's right. But when he sees that his trees are, are threatened by Saruman, yes. he joins the fight. He says, okay, yeah. you know, you can't use my trees for your, your furnaces at Orthanc any longer. Mm. It's time for the Ents to go to war. Yeah. Now, by the way, in terms of names, we tend to kind of downplay that. Mm -hmm. But I want you to think about the last time you were in a crowded room and someone said your name. All right. Names do give power mm -hmm. because they do instantly command your attention. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. It's a magical thing, you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I think that we're on, we're on safe ground because of the fact that there are other things that are going on within the, cor you know, the corpus, Tolkien's corpus, that would reinforce the points that we've made. And we know something about philology, we know something about Tolkien's worldview, we know something about his, his uh, you know, appreciation for the natural world and creation, and we've got his creation story, you know, his That's creation right. myth. So all these things. So what I want to do at this point is think a little bit about what this could mean for us. You know, because we're called Exercise Dominion, right? So this is not just something I think that is relevant to character, to a particular character in a book. I think it, it's relevant for us. And uh, so there's this little exchange between Goldberry and, um, and Frodo, uh, and Frodo's wondering, you know, what Tom's all about. <laughs> and so he says, Fair lady, said Frodo, again after a while, tell me, my asking does not seem foolish. Who is Tom Bombadil? That, by the way, is going to be the, the title of this episode. Who is Tom Bombadil? Her response. Now, think about this response in light of Scripture. Yeah. He is. He's the first boy. Yeah. yeah, he is, said Goldberry, uh, staying her swift movements and smiling. Frodo looked at her questioningly. He is as you have seen him, she said in answer to his look. He is the master of wood, water, and hill. Then Frodo's response is this. Then all, these strain, all this strange land belongs to him? No, indeed, she answered, and her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden. <laughs> She added in a low voice as if to herself, the trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on the hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom Bombadil is master. I propose that's Adam or at least how Adam should have been. <laughs> That's what we have with, with Tom and Goldberry, because remember, Goldberry is a gift to Tom as well. He just comes to the water and there she is. 
and she becomes his wife. You know, so this is a beautiful Edenic picture. Now, one of the things that's really, and we talked about this, I think we may have talked about it during the course of the show, but we definitely talked about it beforehand, is that, is that the old forest is fallen, yeah. but Tom is not. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still the master. And he still relates to it as the master, and, and he relates to it not as not first and foremost as it is fallen, but first and foremost as respecting the dignity of their own natures. Yes, that's, that's right. the thing. He's not the master in such a way that he is 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 uh, overrules their natures, but he is in such a way that actually I think receives, and from that reception of their natures, like we were talking about a minute ago, and the way way Glenn put it, I think you you capture that there. It a, a completely uh, I think something comes to mind that comes out of a whole different realm of things. Um, the Swiss theologian, uh, modern theologian, Karl Barth, used to have this fascination and love with Mozart. And um, he used to have this funny joke that said, you know, it may be such that in heaven, before the throne of God, everyone listens to Bach, but when the angels are in secret, they're listening to... <laughs> That's right. They got, a, they got, a, they got a, an old LP in the, in the bedroom, and they're <laughs> right. listening, to, listening to Mozart. <laughs> and interestingly, Bart, in the morning, would wake up. His wife would put Mozart on, and that's how she would get him up every day. And actually, the day that she knew he had passed away is because he didn't start moving his feet. His hands were still folded in prayer from the night before. Huh. But interesting, he wrote a little book on Mozart. And one of the things he talked about was what he noted. He talked about sort of the freedom of Mozart. That was his language. But in another way of putting it, it was really the way the dominance of Mozart. The way in which freedom and dominance were interconnected in, in, in someone who worked within the parameters both of, of grace and created the created order of things. Mm -hmm. And so Mozart isn't here as an anarchist trying to break down the musical rules. This is a person who has internalized that order mm. that mimics in some way music in the created order. Mm -hmm. And so what you have, Mozart, is just a free Tom Bombadil singing and jumping and leaping within that music. Yeah, and right. that, that is what he saw as someone actually able to kind of embody forth the, the, the joy and grace at the heart of all things mm -hmm. in their music. It's because he's not under a burden or pressure to, to conflict with um, musical form and structure, but here's someone who went with it and just was able to be free within that, that whole it wasn't definition. It wasn't into atonality yeah. or anything. That's, that's <laughs> right. Luther, I think, it, I think it was talking about Josquin Desprez. Luther said that for everybody else, they have to do what the notes tell them to do. Yeah. With Josquin, the notes do what he tells them to, to do. do. Mm -hmm. it's, and yeah. that's, the, that, that's the core idea. The core. Right. And I, and I, I think th it was just scam, but anyway. But yeah, it, the, yeah, the I think concept. it parallels kind of what's going on here as well, this kind of uh, you know, parable, if you will, or, or right. a kind of example of, of this kind of relationship to things, that you have someone who, even in the midst of this fallen situation, is, is walking in the, the true freedom of right. someone who, who has not been... Um, um, yeah, brought into it. And true freedom does not involve ownership. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, I'm an advocate of patriarchy, but when I, when I say that, I think that 95% of the time people think of Saruman. Hmm. They think of Saran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They yeah. think of the tyrant who's, who's compelling people to obey and do things for Sar Saruman's sake or Saran's yeah, sake. Yeah, yeah. I think of Bombadil. <laughs> I think the true patriarch is a Bombadil. Yeah. 
Yeah. He, he delights in the flourishing of those under his care. Yeah. And he's calling them to their true natures. Yeah. Now, he, he manages the boundaries. Mm -hmm. he, he, he patrols the boundaries, making sure that the different creatures don't take advantage of each other and that kind of thing. And I think we see that with the old man Willow and with the, with the barrel right incidents. He intervenes yeah. when evil is, is, yeah. is occurring. Yeah, and interestingly enough, the barrows are not in the old forest. Yes, that's a good so point. So he leaves his own territory. Mm. To rescue the hobbits, he still has authority there, in part, I suspect, because the barrow is unnatural. Hmm. That's a good or the idea. barrow white is unnatural. Yeah, yeah. And so he is, hmm. his, his authority there comes from the fact that this barrow white is unnatural. It's an evil spirit right. inhabiting a dead body, and he is returning it right. to its proper state. Right. And there's, there's almost kind of like a, a resurrection kind of dynamic to the, to the deliverance of Frodo and the hobbits. When he comes in, it's almost as though, you know, it's, it's the son of God who's entering in to, 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 to call forth from the grave. From literally the grave. Yes, yeah, right, yeah. right. So, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's told from Frodo's perspective, if I recall correctly. And the description, you know, of the contents of the barrow as Frodo is laying there uh, in a state where he's as good as dead, yeah. you know, he's delivered at that point. Hmm. Um, but, I, but I think something, and this is where the, the, so the, the ethical mm -hmm. you know, dimension of this comes into play for me is, you know, as a father, as a pastor, mm -hmm. you know, fathers and you, you guys exercise authority in, in the classroom and so forth. Mm -hmm. How do we go about that? Um, in a way that calls people to their natures, you know, to be what they were made to be, um, and uh, liberate them even from themselves. You know, if you think about, you know, the, the, the episode at Babel, well, they were trying to name themselves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, it explicitly says that, let us make a name for ourselves. Right. And immediately afterward, God says to Abram, who is a descendant of Shem, a word that means name, yeah. I will make a name for you. That's right. Beautiful juxtaposition. I yeah. think that's exactly right. So it seems to me that our naming as fathers, spiritually and you know, even within the framework of the, of the family, mm -hmm. uh, is in a sense this task, this job. Mm -hmm. And the, the, where I see something really important here is that our culture wants us to name ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean in terms of sexuality or something like that, which is where you run into it most often. But what do you want to be when you grow up? What yeah. do you, yeah. you, know, wh wh uh, how, you know, what do you want to accomplish? It's always about you, 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 you. What do you want? Mm -hmm. And there is little room to speak into the person's life because really they need to pursue their own mm -hmm. dreams or their own whatever. Yeah, and, 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 that can, and if that's the case, then it's just hands off. I don't want to intervene yeah, and, or and, interfere. And there is no you there other than sort of ill-defined wants and, mm -hmm. and willing. It turns mm -hmm. into solipsism. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. and it, it, it's a heavy burden. I think it is the burden that creates the anxiety which creates most of the, the issues uh, of of the time, and, and I do think, I mean, I think uh, 
you know, I think Tolkien was on to this as well. Um, one of the things that David Wells in his God, famous God in the Wasteland book, um, he was talking about the way in which modernization and modernity have both so shaped, especially Western culture, to the fact that, that when we move from a God-centeredness to a human-centeredness, that human-centered self was quickly overridden by the modernization process, like mm. we've talked about with mm. technology, propaganda. We've talked about these things already. Right, right. How these forces have come in and, and even made that humanistic prost, uh, process com completely lose its, itself. Right. And so the self uh, in the process is, is, is all over the place, in, or maybe as postmoderns put it, there isn't one. Um, yeah, right. But uh, one of the things he asks uh, in that book is, he says, what do, what do we do? I mean, what is the evangelical world? He says, well, this is what it's done. It's accommodated and basically taken this contemporary psychology, which is the byproduct of modernity and modernization, and basically made it the culture in which we're speaking the gospel, so that the gospel actually is not being able to do its proper kind of engagement because it's being filtered through a framework uh, and a culture in the church right. um, that is basically modernist or postmodern psychology. And so because of that, you don't have a, a theological culture in which people are being brought, therefore, to actually hear a gospel within its proper context. I, I'll break that down at a later point. But, but what ends up going on there, he asks a question, okay, we have two choices then, or only a limited amount of choices. We go the way of the Amish, that didn't go so well. Um, he said, then we can really just go the way of this, this process of accommodation, but we lose, we lose the riches. Yep. So yep. And I think what, what's going on here is this kind of question, um, what do we do? Now, interestingly, one of the things you find out all over the Old Testament is you have Israel displaced all the time. Mm. They lose their temple. They lose all of those structures of significance that define them as a people. Mm. And what is the call when they're in exile or this? It's back to their sources. There mm. is a retrieval process. So you can't, you can't unpack the fact that you're in exile or in Babylon. You can't, you can't, you can't once the experiences happen, no longer experience the effects of having gone through this particular process or history. But then what do you do? And I think that's what this question brings up, is yeah. how do we go about it? I'm just going to stay with this. I'll do one last one. All right. Well, I, I, I think uh, you know, that's an interesting uh, set of observations, Tom. And I think, you know, as a pastor, I'm constantly struggling with how do I frame what I'm saying yeah. in such a way but I'm actually not making things worse or feeding the beast yeah, or yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Because it's, it's just uh, remarkable how people can take what you say and sort of, uh, yeah. you know, massage it or, you know, force it into the categories that they, yeah. you know, they, they're operating from every day. When in fact, what you just said calls into question all the categories that they use to. <laughs> well, even, even just think about evangelicals. Our, our, proclamation of the gospel is so individualistically oriented right. that it's hard really to understand the first word of the Lord's Prayer in English. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Be right. because we don't see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. Right. We see ourselves as individuals. Right. And now this applies to the church, but I think it also brings us back to Bombadil, mm. that we are who we are by virtue of gift and creation, 
and we live in a world that is gift and creation. Mm -hmm. And we are supposed to work and function within that in dominion, not domination. Right. right. So, yeah, and if we think about how, you know, God uh, creates, he gives the, the, the world its being and the creatures within it their beings uh, and their natures. You know, in other words, they're not simply, uh, you know, blank sheets to be written upon. There are, there's something there. But the first task is to receive what, you've, what you are, I think. Uh, and that would mean, in, you know, in part, I'm a social creature. I'm not simply, uh, you know, an, an automaton or, a, a, you know, a monad or, or, or something that sort of is just completely turned on in, in on itself. I'm relating to a larger reality. So I'm a gift to others, and others are gifts to me. The creation itself is a gift. And for something to be a gift, there has to be, I think, some something to it. <laughs> in other and, words... And which means probably that even though our fundamental identity is made in the image of God, part of that being made a fellow creature is the fact that all of those gifts go into developing from the external part of what it means to be the identities we have mm -hmm. versus the flip side, my identity is bore strictly with on the possibilities out here that I um, grab hold of based on some kind of interconnection with my own individual right. self. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a formula for restlessness. Yes. There is no rest and self-creation. There is no Sabbath day. Yeah, and there's no singing while you're walking through the right. forest. Right. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough, I, th this just occurred to me. The word master comes etymologically. We're talking Tolkien here, so he's well, well aware of this. Right, right. Comes etymologically from a word that refers to a teacher. Hmm. Magister. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, right. So right. when she says, when Goldberry says to Frodo, oh, it would be way too heavy a burden, each thing belongs to itself, but he's the master. Right. It doesn't necessarily, I suspect very strongly now that I'm thinking about this, yeah, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean master in the sense of lord and master. Right. It means he's the teacher. He's right. the one who instructs them in the ways that they should go to fulfill what they really are. Right. There's a marvelous thing I just observed that you did there, uh, Glenn, and that is, as you, you were reflecting upon the nature of this word, it, you know, sort of there was an opening up in terms of your own thinking to a reality that the mm. word expresses that ties into a much larger sort of narrative, which yes. is the story, but also the narrative that we live in, which is you know, human history and stuff like That's that. Right. And one of the questions that came up on our Facebook page had to do with this whole matter of how you go about telling a story. Hmm. And I think one of the things that, as a storyteller myself and a person who attempts to write fiction, <laughs> not saying that I do a great, uh, great job of it or anything, but, but when, you, when, when you engage in the craft of, of telling uh, a, a long story, um, and you try to do it well, not like, you know, in a didactic way, you know, but actually in the spirit of the art form, which, mm. which uh, doesn't mean it doesn't teach. You know, we've been talking about, mm -hmm. you know, lessons that we can draw, draw from the story of Bombadil, but it's, it's sort of in the spirit or the nature of the story or the nature of the, of the story's sort of structure 
that we're talking about the purposes or the meanings of the, and that we can derive from it. But one of the things about writing a, a story is, is its serendipitous quality or nature. Because as you, as you go about writing a story, you discover things that are in your own story that you didn't even see were there. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it's brought to your attention as an author by a reader. And you're like, of course. Now, what was happening? I knew that. Yes, but, but what happened? It, were, are you? Is it sort of? Is it an unconscious thing? Is there some kind of sub subconscious thing that's going on? Is there some kind of Jungian thing with archetypes? <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there, there's that. But one of the things that Tolkien was uh, noted for in his, or he said in the in his uh, essay uh, or his address on fairy stories, is he he talks about sort of the stew or the soup of story, that uh, you know something gets thrown into the pot, something gets taken out of the pot. In other words, stories are not entirely uh, in the control of the narrator or the storyteller. Um, you know, because we're talking about a, re a reality outside of ourselves, right. that there, there are connections in the world that the stories reflect that we may not know we're bringing to, into the stories. Well, it's interesting because that, in, in at least a uh, theological world, raises a kind of error, I think, that happened. We can't visit it today. But there's a difference between what we would call hermeneutics versus metaphysics, is I think the fact that there is a surplus of meaning in every story, a lot of people have meant, therefore, there isn't anything that the story or the author, sh there isn't any real say they should have in yeah, their own story. Right, so therefore, right. it, whatever life takes off from it, they recognize your point, but I think they get the wrong idea. They think, therefore, the only meaning is what other people take away. Yeah. Where I think the point is not hermeneutical, it's metaphysical. That's it. It's that you're actually good stories are those that are putting us in contact with the real, kind of like Bombadil is doing. Right. And right. allowing us actually to make these connections because they are part of reality, not simply our interpretation of what's significant for us in and of ourselves. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think, you know, when we when we think about stories in sort of this postmodern way, then it, then the whole task is is sort of uh, you know, we're fighting almost with the author. We're trying to, again, name ourselves, yeah. but we're using maybe material that the author has presented to us so that we can appropriate that material for our own ends. But if, but if, we're, if we're in a, in a world that's suffused with meaning, then we've got a, a situation in which, um, like you said, a surplus of meaning means that, that we can go back to a story, particularly a good one, again and again, and not read into it. It's not eisegesis, right. but draw out of it things that we, we've missed before. And I yeah. think certainly that's what happens with the Bible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, well, we should probably start wrapping things up. We're getting kind of to that, kind of getting to that point, but this has been such a, a rich topic. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything that you guys want to say before we wrap up, but if you do, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry, we didn't actually get to all of the questions. That yeah, we right, right, right. But uh, hopefully, the, the I mean, I, I found this personally really kind of interesting because I've spent a, a lot of time thinking about Bombadil, so a lot of this was was sort of my own ruminations here. But I think it's, uh, it's a really intriguing idea and a really uh, fruitful 
area to explore, and I wouldn't mind coming back to it at some point. Yeah, we could do Bombadil 2 or something like that. That's right. 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 Anything else, Tom? Ah, I think the themes uh, just, I mean, they go along with everything else we're doing, but just from, from the particular way in which Tolkien did it, and like the other Inklings as well, through, through the use of imagination, story, and language, and their expertise with it, uh, open these dimensions of reality that have been flattened by... Right. You know the, the the processes, especially in the West, that have kind of knocked deeper meaning and value out of the picture. And I say I think this I think we'll return to the same stuff even when we talk about other topics. Right. Well, I think as I wrap up my thinking on this, you know, what we have with Bombadil, I'm proposing is a is a, is sort of the uh, the nature of the of the you know the exercise of dominion in the garden. But uh, that's behind us now. There's no going back. There's a cherubim that's got a flashing sword that's going both ways, <laughs> keeping us from get, getting there. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, I think uh, the question that comes up at this point is, is, since there's no going back, what are we going to? You know, what does this mean for us going forward? And I think that's, uh, you know, when we think about the nature of the kingdom to come, and how does it relate to some of these themes that we've addressed? By the way, there's a there's a book that Tolkien wrote called uh, Return of the King. So I'm wondering about how how the end of the story relates to the yeah. beginning. Well, of the that story. would be good, and even you could we could deal with that in 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 relation to the topic of eschatology, um, not so much dealing with oh, all yeah. the. Because the systematic views, but the the larger picture of yeah, and and how does how does dominion as we are to exercise it now in a fallen world? How's that how's that supposed to to be a, you know uh, how are we supposed to go about it? Anyway, some thoughts that just occur to me, and I don't have time to think you know say anything about. But uh, thanks for listening to the podcast today. We appreciate your interest in our in our. Uh, podcast, and we know that a number of folks out there uh, are are listening. We get uh, input almost on a daily basis. People sending us messages uh, on our Facebook page, but also also in other ways. People people find all sorts of creative ways to get a hold of me. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. And, and some have even been generous to to help. Kind of us. Uh, that's right. Sponsor us a bit. Yeah, that's we appreciate right. it. Yeah, we do very much. Yeah, and. Uh, so if you're one of those people who hasn't had a chance to, to do that but would really like to, the way you do it is you go to the uh, CrossPolitik page or to the Fight, Laugh, Feast network page, and there there are some instructions as to how to become a, uh, a club member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast, Feast network. And if you want to do that and you want to make sure that the podcast gets uh, some help financially uh, when you become a member, just... Use the code word PUGCAST, and that will let them know that you have us in mind. Anyway, that's it for the commercial. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.